like maybe you're telling them something good that, that if they could figure it out would really help their movement. But if it's like, if it doesn't actually penetrate into the body, it's just consuming attentional resources they could have available, just doing the skill without any cues. So it's easy to sort of then want to reject the, the almost reject the verbal part of coaching almost entirely. But I think there's a huge difference between sort of framing and, and giving philosophy and giving a connected narrative around what you're doing and over cueing the actual skills. You can find stuff if you're trying to think about the goals of your main sport or athletic that sport or skill you're trying to train. If you think about the goals of those, then you can abstract a game from those goals rather than trying to just warm up through like lighter technical variations of the same technique you're going to be covering anyway. Um, and it comes a lot less redundant and a lot more fun. That was Rafe Kelly and Charles St. John. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Simply Faster. I wanted to let you know about the Simply Faster Clinic, which is going to be hosted at Tony Villani's XPE Sports in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, May 21st, 2022. This clinic will feature Tony Holler speaking on track speed for football using a Feed the Cats approach, Les Spellman highlighting acceleration profiling for speed development, Tony Villani speaking on game speed and separation for agility, as well as Joey Garasio speaking on application of strength, power, speed, and agility to a team setting. To sign up for this clinic, you can go to simplyfaster.com, then their online store, and you'll find the clinic sign up under promotional. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. Motor learning is a topic of human performance that has grown on me year to year to year. And honestly, even through this past year, has month to month been something that I am more and more interested in. How we learn really, uh, it permeates every element of a training program. It's not like we have skills that exist on one side in isolation and then totally isolated like strength on another side, for example. Everything we do as humans is a skill and understanding the skill demands of any athlete and what is being asked of them for their primary sport, as well as any supplementary training can really give us a better insight into the total coaching process. Today's show features guests Rafe Kelly and Charles St. John. I met both of these individuals in person at Rafe Kelly's Return to the Source retreat last year in Washington State. Although I've had Rafe on the show and talked to him over Zoom multiple times in the past, this was my first chance to actually meet and interact with his movement ecology in person. In the course of being there at Return to the Source, I also met Charles St. John. Both of these individuals are well-versed in multiple aspects and arenas of human movement and skill and performance. Rafe is the owner of Evolve Move Play and has studied and taught a multitude of movement practices in his career as a mover and a coach. Charles has been training parkour since 2009 and coaching it since 2012. He carries multiple parkour coaching certifications and is a certified personal trainer as well. He currently coaches at Apex Denver Parkour and Circus Facility in Colorado. On the podcast today, Rafe and Charles will speak on two different really uh, main topics. The first topic, we're going to dive into their thoughts on different games and sports, using games as a, a donor or a really skill feeder into the main session, or just as a standalone in principles of having maximal fun and invoking maximal human components into that game. The second half of the show, we're going to be chatting all about multiple topics of motor learning, 
We'll be speaking on how Rafe and Charles set training sessions up to keep athletes in flow and maximize that uh, flow of learning. They'll be talking on the frequency of cueing, how not to let words uh, and overcoaching diminish one's movement quality, speaking on movement velocity, feeding errors, and much more. This is a really cool show, and there's a lot packed into this hour and 40 or so of conversation. It was great to chat with these two and to reconnect with these two after spending a week with them in Washington State last year. And I know you guys are going to enjoy this show. No matter where on that coaching and movement spectrum you sit, there's a lot of really good information in here for everyone. Let's get on to episode 304. So, you know, I was going to jump to the first question about motor learning and, and what were some of your influences in that world. But I thought it was interesting. We were just chatting about like what's like the best sport basically in light of parkour, human movement. I mean, I don't know. Best is relative, but uh, you guys have both mentioned um, a specific sport that you guys thought uh, carried a lot of qualities and, and was just something that almost basically like all people should do, all kids should play. And I'm curious what that sport is and why you guys think that way. And then we'll get into the motor learning. Well, Charles, I think you've actually like described this and also described it in relationship to my work, maybe better than I have. So why don't you start? Yeah, sure. Sure. So, um, yeah, I, I've played most of the team sports growing up that, that exists, but in high school, I chose to play rugby and I would contest out of all the sports I've played that it was the best designed as a like ball sport, competitive athletic uh, endeavor. Um, it was the only sport I played that really allowed for a range of body types like if you're small and scrappy, you know, scrum half, like you're going to get in there. If you're big and burly, you're going to be part of the scrum. If you're tall and lanky, you can be a hooker. If you're light, you're light and fast. Like I was at that time, you're going to be playing out on like the wing or one of the back positions. Whereas, you know, contrast that to basketball where it's like the taller you are, the better you're going to be at the game. There was just roles for different people. I also enjoy that rugby doesn't stop play um, very much, which really helps with you know overall endurance but as well as strength there's like this nice interplay of the range of uh, of both aerobic and anaerobic moments i mean you were mentioning it yourself joel that there's parts where you know your hands and feet you're crawling you're using your hands you're interacting with other people as well as a ball so there's kind of a light combatives elements as well as coordinated elements there's just so much to it that i really enjoyed and like one of the icing on the cake was for rugby, the coaches are not allowed onto the field during the game. So your actual team captain is making decisions on like a, it, at, at the ground level in real time. The coach is just up in a box, not being able to contribute until like a breakdown at halftime. And even that little detail, I think, really kind of adds to the richness of the activity versus many of the other team sports I've played. Yeah, for me, basically, you know, I've been thinking about the the avatar of the ultimate generalist mover for a long time. Like, if you go back and read the the CrossFit Journal one, like what is fitness? They offer this idea that you know you should be fit across all the ten athletic attributes, like speed, power, agility, etc. Right? Accuracy. You know, you should have a balanced metabolic development. But the one that's really interesting is you should, if you had like an infinite hopper of physical tasks. That best athlete is the athlete performs best across all of them, which I think is is a pretty good start. Personally, I would add, you should be best at the most important aspects of movement. Like, there's actually doing Fran isn't that important compared to being able to defend yourself. 
So what are those fundamental sort of evolutionarily relevant things? And I think they show up in, in movement play, which is locomotion moving through your environment, manipulation being a moving object around, and uh, interaction with other people. How, how well do you move with other people? So team sports are interesting because they, they have all of those demands in them, right? So if you're, you're playing rugby, you have to manipulate the ball and you have to run, jump, move on all fours, and then you have to engage with the other players. And you have to do it in a team manner. You have to cooperate with other people. So you get some of this in baseball, you get some of it in basketball, you get some of it in football. Which of these is going to produce the best general overall mover? I like rugby because it has a contact element. And I'm, you know, like, I think that rugby and football are really underrated actually as self-defense arts. If you, if you think about, if you're in a, like people think ambush in a, in a, in an alley when they think self-defense, but what if self-defense is like, you're in a big crowd and you know, there's an explosion and you have to get out of the crowd. And what if you have to do it while like helping other people get out of the crowd? Right. Do you want a jujitsu black belt with you? Or do you want like a bunch of linemen? Right. Oh, and like, you know, you, you know, to that point too, rugby, you're also unarmored and play doesn't stop once you're on the ground. So, and you're not fighting for yardage. So you, you're not just training to like take somebody down or avoid being taken down. You're also trying to get back onto your feet and back into like a functional position. So yeah, I'm with you there. That's a good thought. Combination of the free flow aspect of it. I think that I really, I do love American football. I think there's some really interesting aspects about American football as far as how the, the vertical game opens up really intriguing types of plays to happen. But I think, especially for kids, having a free flow based sport as their, as their base is really, really valuable. And it's hard to deal with all the stoppage in play um, that happens in American football, but you're, you're going to, you're going to get all the cutting and, evasion and being able to escape somebody you're going to get tackling you're going to get all that in this game and you're going to get the the learning to coordinate and solve a kind of interesting problem with a group of other people so that's why that's the base sport that i've chosen for my kids to the degree that they're willing to do it my <laughs> my son loves it my oldest daughter is is skeptical she's preferring soccer right now so but you know you you you, you with your kids, you got to give them the space to to choose the sports that, that they love too. But rugby is the one that I'm really excited about with my kid. He also plays American football uh, during the fall season. But uh, I was you know just out with him yesterday. I was walking around the field and I came back and there was you know they're they're under eight, right? He's seven years old, so they're just learning to really be able to pass the ball. So they finally got like a string of passes to him out on the wing, and then he just carved his way through the whole defense and scored a try right easily nice and i was like yeah damn that looks like fun it just looks like so much fun like the way that a beautiful parkour line just makes you want to do it that's the way and like seeing all the like making everybody miss that just seems like such an extraordinary expression of athleticism and if you can imagine that somebody had all the ability to move through the environment well that a parkour athlete has and that ability to read other players make them miss right? Take contact, overcome contact and keep moving and the ability to throw well and catch well and do things with their hands. That to me is the, the ultimate athletic archetype. I mean, like kind of onto the main topic today though, it's like the way you described rugby, it's like, and then knowing your son's hopping into American football, it's like, it's going to be a good donor sport in that regard. And I mean, like 
some of the most exciting parts of football and the stuff you're just describing is those like clock runs out scrambles where football just devolves into rugby anyway. <laughs> part of football like, is rugby. Yep. Pretty. I, I would contest it. <laughs> yeah. Or um, with uh, Tony Villani's recent episode talking about game speed and how a lot of times receivers and or D backs and football are trying to play basketball as long as they can, which basketball, again, a free flowing, you could say donor sport to football. So it's cool to see that in multiple arenas. And I definitely get it with kids too. I even coaching, like I'm coaching my, I probably say it way too much on the show, but coaching my five-year-old daughter's soccer team, like it is all about holding those kids' attention. And you know, I don't know what age, I mean, I, I guess kids around this area of Ohio probably start playing organized football at like eight. And I, it's to me, it's almost even hard to imagine. Like, I mean, I don't know how old your son is, right? But like the attentional capacity for, you know, there's a, always a certain line. And if kids are doing something that keeps them in flow, that's like not, something that adults don't have to intervene in as much there's so much more learning going on i kind of look at it almost even like two i'm um, like when i got into bodyweight isometric holds like you do an isometric lunge for three to five minutes and there's a lot of learning in that dense time frame compared to like two sets three sets of 10 or something it's anyways i just thought that was interesting that you mentioned that with rugby as opposed to uh like yeah, when you learn these very structured sports later on yeah football seems like it it has a very what is the barrier to entry for a sport, right? That's a really important aspect of like when, when you want it in developmentally. So for kids, actually, like basketball is really hard unless you bring the hoop down. But like for a, a six and seven-year-old, dribbling and shooting a big, huge basketball into a hoop that's 10 feet over their head, like the success rate is so low. Oh, yeah. So I, I think basketball also teaches some really beautiful qualities. I, I, I love it. But... um but yeah, I think as a base team sport, rugby has a lot to uh, a lot to recommend it, especially as we're introducing kids into sport. And like I said, you know, with with football, all the set plays and like learning in routes and out routes and hook routes and all that, it's like that's a lot for a kid to try and absorb. Yeah, but one of the things that I was thinking of as you guys were saying is, and I will say, uh, well, some of the coaches that I've had on have their own like kind of coverall game that they play before like uh, a gym training session. Like before we lift weights, we're going to go play this game. And uh, Kurt Hester is on. He's got ghetto ball. Pat Coyne's got Kirby ball. Paul Cater's got alpha yeah. ball. And all these games are like a hybrid. They're mi- different games. Like there's carrying, there's kicking, there's... And then Jeremy Frisch talks about... Uh, I've heard him say this more than once. I, just, I love this because I just... I have this picture of like playing this because I never got to play this tackle basketball. I'm like, you know what? Tackle basketball is probably about the closest thing to rugby of, of, of pretty much anything you could do, I think, on many levels. So uh, maybe uh, maybe return to the source one year. Uh, we can get tackle basketball. <laughs> I was going to say, sorry, I was, was going to say that log game at return. Like, because I, I think too, like, you know, we, we, this, this is a multifaceted discussion. Like, one, it could be training kids and giving kids donor sports to play. But a lot of people listening to this, it's, well, I have a team. I maybe have a high school team, a college team maybe even a pro team. And it's fun to see games becoming more and more accepted as the warm-up, like universal games, not, I mean, even just general games. I mean, I remember I went and uh, hung out with uh, Gil Reyes, who is a tennis, like physical prep coach, trained Andre Agassi and went to his facility in Las Vegas. And the first thing he had these tennis kids do is he's like, yeah, just go shoot hoops for five, 10 minutes and come back. Like that was his warm-up. And I was like, this is back before I met you and like you guys and like, you know, started getting into any of that and i was like oh that's cool doing a game like that was one of the 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 first ideas that you could do a game and then a few years after that like 
the men's tennis team at Cal, we were doing games almost every warm up and they loved it. And sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track, but I wanted to, maybe you guys can talk about that, the log game, because I actually took that. So I, I was, I went to return to the source and that log game was literally the most fun that I think I've ever had in the last, I don't know, 10 years. Like it was so much fun. And not just that, because people will hear, oh, it's fun. But fun, it, it, like if we're talking about outputs, like in the nervous system and preparing to, I don't know, lift or sprint or whatever, like the more fun you have before you do the outputs, the better your outputs are going to be. Like, I, I wish there would be a research on like just a canned, like do this, this, this on the whistle and then something that's fun and engages all facets of the human body and see what it does. And like that, that oh, anyways, describe describe the log game because I think I've used something like that in my warmups after a turn of source with like boxes like that were islands and it was awesome. Kids love it. The athletes love it. So I'd be you guys yeah, talking yeah. about the game. We call it King of the, the Course. And uh, we actually just released a video of it yesterday. And there's a, there's a little blog post about it as well on my website. So it was cool. Basically, I hadn't really been able to do a lot of partner-based and game-based training for a while because of COVID. So we came into 2021 and it was like, I had all these ideas that were bubbling forth in me about bringing those elements into the practice. And you know, we're, we're really trying to hybridize really kind of like that avatar that we talked about. You, you should be a martial artist. Like the fundamental kind of things that we think you should be able to do are martial arts, parkour, some kind of team sport element, be able to, to manipulate objects, sticks, balls, ropes. Like those are the fundamental kind of physical games. And so we're looking for not only like, it, it's not that you should just be competent in each of those areas. You should actually be able to blend them. That's where we're, I think we're going to create the most most capable athletes. So we were just, as we were teaching that time, it kind of started coming out. And so the first thing that happened is we, we use a game called King of the Log. So you, you have two people stand on the log and they try to off balance each other. And they start with just grabbing each other's hands and then trying to off balance each other. Then you can open it up and let them kind of like almost play a little bit of a sumo wrestling thing. But the thing is that once they're standing on the log, it takes away so much of their ability to produce force because they have to balance. So it really scales nicely for any group of people, and it teaches basics of grappling and striking even with very little danger to the participants. So we wanted to hybridize that. So we said, what if the wind condition isn't knock the other guy off the log? After you knock the other guy off the log, you have to jump and land off of the log on another log. Right? So you have to get past them and jump to another thing. So that was the first iteration that came up. And then I was like, what if it was a whole course? And then we could think you have a combative situation, but the combative situation, the advantage is determined by your competency and locomotion. So you have this course and there are going to be better places on the course to try to win the, the dyadic interaction, which you can dominate by getting to before the other guy gets there. So then we were going to send people through the course and see who could get to the, the, the dominant place and then win the, the, the little grappling contest when they arrived there. And then we were like, well, what if we made it a team game? Now you have a whole group of people trying to advance one player on their team through the course and get to the end. So you have basically like two end zones where each team starts. Then they go through the course and it's basically a hot lava course. And then every time the players meet, they're trying to outcompete each other to, to knock the other guy off and then move forward. But once we added the team dynamic, you have this thing of like sacrificing yourself to let the player behind you get a chance to play. And like 
we set it up so that there were like alternate routes through the course. So you could go and take somebody out by a different route to then set somebody else out to, to make a play for, for a goal. And it all kind of evolved very organically in the moment. But once it kind of landed, it was incredibly fun. And we just saw people light up and we saw this, the team, the teamwork aspect was really cool. And the power of the connection. So I I could say more, I want to talk about kind of all of the things that you're getting from that game, but that's a a good place to start with. That's what the game was. Do you guys want to to chime in on that or ask any follow-up questions? Yeah, I I was going to say, Charles, you were on my team, weren't you? I feel like you were on my team on that game. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I was for a good chunk. (laughs) So like, I remember the way that was playing out though. You had me, you as well. And there was like some people like we had you self-organized into your strengths to where it's like, I can just, you know, I can like running jump eight, 10 feet onto an, like onto an unstable log and be okay. So it's like, I could skip ahead if other people that were more, uh, more grappling oriented, were going to be able to pull people away as Rafe was saying to those more combative areas of the course to where you could end. It was nice in that regard in that it like allowed people to discover their particular strengths and lean into them, but then still have to occasionally face areas they're weaker in. But it's self-organized in the same way that like we were talking about with rugby or other team sports that like based on height or like capabilities, you take certain positions on the team and that that kind of came up organically as well. Yeah, I I remember you know, I, I kind of, I wanted, or wanted to ask more about that because it was something that, you know, not everyone listening to this is necessarily, I mean, again, it'd be great if we all could go out in the woods and get logs and play this because it was amazing. But like a lot of people, it's like, okay, what do I do with the athletes in front of me here? How do I create a greater experience, like a better warm up experience for them? And for me, yeah. you know, Rafe, I love what you talk about, like the self-sacrificing. And then Charles, you were talking about like the different ability levels, like you win that game we're like jumping on the rocks where the big guys were on the main logs, like having battles, you know, and, and like the, like, like rugby, like the smaller players have something they can do. The bigger players have something they can do. There's like self-sacrifice involved. So it great. You have a greater connection with your team. And like, I know Kurt Hester, when he was on talking about ghetto ball, he's like, the players like that more than they like football. Like they were, they'd play the game and they were like, just totally gassed. And they were all more about that than football, which is funny. I mean, cause it's just so fun. And the what I ended up doing after like you know probably August, go back to the gym and I got a group. Actually, it wasn't even a group I was training. It was just hey, there's a bunch of guys in the gym. I was like, hey, you guys want to play this game? And they're like, okay. So we lined up, and this was way more. Da- I wouldn't recommend doing it this way. This is like logs, pretty safe. Logs on sand. You know what is it? Twelve inches tall, fourteen inches tall. Like you're not gonna fall too far. Like I had like twenty four inch boxes. Like like I basically had a big line of like twelve to twenty four inch boxes down the middle of this twenty meter gym. And one box was like a base and the guys on the other side. So it's three on three, basically. And we just ran at each other, hot lava style, you know, ground is lava style. You get to push the other person off. And then I think we had a few sand bells like sitting on the floor that were like stones that you could land on. And it was so much fun. Like it was if I was going to uh, warm up for a lift or something or or something else that there is so much information. And it's just such a, a yeah, like it's almost like a. When you're thinking about the game to play before whatever it is the main thing you're doing, be it a lift, maybe even a team skill session, I think getting in the mindset of thinking as how can I create a donor opportunity for this? You know, the same way parkour is a donor sport to other sports or rugby is a donor sport or soccer is a donor sport. 
and, and like how all these other coaches have combined all these things. And I think the only thing that maybe some of those, the, you know, like the other ball oriented, I should say the other coaches have more very ball oriented donor games they use to warm up with. Whereas the log game, the king of the course is like grappling, like there is physical contact. And I think that that's, I think just, it's just really beneficial. I think that there's so many ways you could go with it. And I really benefited a lot from that kind of thing. I know I have a, like I have a distance running group, like it's basically running mechanics, strength training for distance. And I will warm up with those types of games. And they, they like it. That's their favorite part. Like they, they're like, yeah, kind of excited about improving their running, but they're like, really excited about getting to rough house especially the girls <laughs> so it's like you know being in the private sector too it is like michael zufel said it's that for people to come back yes you need to improve them at the thing they're trying to get better at but they also need to have a lot of fun like that's the thing they look forward to is what they remember is actually the fun that they had and for a lot of these kids especially even kids too who might not be headed to college for their sport like that's i don't know it, it's it really reshapes your perception on what was a great training session and what bases did you cover for the whole thing yeah. I think for like the listeners, that's probably one of the most relevant takeaways is like crafting something that can be a donors, uh, like a donor activity to the thing you're doing. So like similar example, I've been assistant coaching partner acrobatics at our gym circus style, you know, where you're like holding people up and throwing them around. And I found that using one of Rafe's games, which is clay sculptures, where mm-hmm. one person is standing statically while somebody else manipulates their body into odd positions and they have to hold the shape without falling over is a great donor to the activity because flyers in partner acrobatics need to be able to hold tension in odd shapes and bases need to hold their balance and also somewhat like oddly compromised angles uh, with weird weights and different, uh, like different vectors. So yeah, it does it. You don't need sand logs, like, you can find stuff if you're trying to think about the goals of your main sport or athletic that sport or skill you're trying to train. If you think about the goals of those, then you can abstract a game from those goals rather than trying to just warm up through like lighter technical variations of the same technique you're going to be covering anyway. Um, and it comes yeah. a lot less redundant and a lot more fun. No, to say, I actually got that game from Tom Wexler, who deserves oh. a Tom's amazing coach, the mannequin game or the, the clay sculptures game. The thought that occurs to me is like, you, you're talking about a group like, okay, so they're distance runners, but they're, they're probably not going to go to college for it. Right? So I think you can think about the specificity of your training. Like you should be asking the question. Uh, I think it was, I think I heard this quote first from the, the adapt guys the, from program generations, but we train the human, right? The first layer that you're looking at is like, how am I making this person just better at being a human being? I think this is especially valuable and valid when you're working with groups who like, if you're working with a, an eight year old, like being like, I'm going to make this guy the best quarterback possible. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a ridiculous goal because the the likelihood that you can project his future till he's 25 years old and playing in the NFL when he's eight, it's incredibly low. Right. But if you like with my kids, I'm like, maybe my son, my son or my daughters are going to do parkour like me. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're going to be MMA fighters. Maybe they're going to be whatever. I want them to have the most options available to them. I want to open those physical doors for them so that, that whatever they end up really liking 
they can go do. Right? It's like, oh, yeah, I, I know how to become a competent mover in any domain. I have lots of physical strength, lots of resilience, lots of ability to handle training. My body's strong and healthy. Like I'll go, I'll go do this. Like if, if that's what I'm suddenly passionate about, I can go do it. So I think that that attitude of, yes, someone comes to you as a distance runner, but first they're just a human being and they need the things that humans need. And a big part of that is an enjoyable experience. And, and oh. the, enjoyment, the enjoyable experience is actually so critical to performance over the length of time. This is something I think we get so caught up in like, okay, you know, what is your, your block periodization? Or what is your wave periodization? It's like, that's great. But if the student is, is having consistently decreased enjoyment every time they come to see you, they're not going to stay. doesn't matter how optimally designed it is to stimulate their cardiorespiratory system. When people have, are well mood regulated in their experience with you, and it's moving them towards something that feels really enjoyable, they're, they're going to be able to give you more, right? They're going to be able to give themselves more. Uh, we, we talked about this warmups, right? Like people are always thinking about warming up the body, but it's like, you got to warm up the brain and the emotions. Like you're going to have a better lift if you were laughing and playing and feeling a little bit competitive before you get to the lift, right? Imagine like you go into the gym and you just were stressed out and you worked all day and you're tired and you're like, you do your, you just like get on the bike until your, your heart rate is a certain rate and you, you hit your body temperature goals, you walk over and you try to lift or imagine you come in and you play a ball game where you get your competitive juices going and you're laughing, you're having fun with your friends. Then you go and lift. Like it's, it's incomparable. The type of results you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll note on that. Like, as I mentioned earlier, I've played almost every ball and field sport there is growing up. And the only sports I have stuck with, are parkour and skiing which are the two not ball sports and individual life sports per se and that's because i everything i was i was in the era of like route drills and cones and you would practice four hours a week to play half of a game on a saturday so it was like four hours to 30 minutes like four hours of drills to 30 minutes of fun and it fizzled me out uh, and I think I probably would have stayed with team sports much longer if they pulled the more bottom up fun, social and emotional elements and like self-organizational elements that skiing demands or parkour demands or kind of more e expressive athletics really do a good job of uh, eliciting from the practitioners. And I think like, kind of I, I think this maybe shoehorns toward like maybe directs us towards our like our main topic of like Rob Gray's work of like a lot of the motor learning material and like constraint led approach stuff is more or baked in to activities I would say like skiing and parkour and then other stuff like that and they're baked into stuff like the log game but they're not baked into the really stringent constraints of team sports or track and field or competitive sports like they could and should be at least that's the way i feel about it so yeah i think i think you made good points there rafe
Quickly, I wanted to let you know about the chance to try out Performance Herbalism for only a few dollars shipping costs and get one of Lost Empire Herbs' flagship products, Pine Pollen, for free. Switching to an herbal emphasis in my supplementation has been a life-changing switch for me. Just as nature is by design balanced and sustainable, I believe that the more natural our diet and our supplementation is, the better. I love and use several Lost Empire Herbs products that boost not only my energy, but also my strength. These include Chiliagit Resin and the Phoenix Formula. You can check those out by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly and grab 15% off. If you're on the fence about the power of herbalism, I have a great offer for you. You do pay a few dollars shipping, but you can get free pine pollen. Pine pollen is an herbal powerhouse that is a hormonal and energy booster packed with nutrition. It's actually part of the Phoenix formula. And you can get that for free along with the normal shipping fee at justflypinepollen.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, let's uh, actually, Charles, you mentioned it. Let's segue into that, the, the motor learning. I yeah. mean, I love talking about the games because, I mean, <laughs> I again, it's just ever since that's been on my radar and, you know, whatever Rafe, our first podcast was. And, you know, like I talked about, uh, like with the tennis experience, like that's been such a massive part of how I've changed things with how I go about a training session. So I love talking about it, but I also want to get into motor learning because I think you guys have a very unique, I mean, it's not, I mean, there's tons of parkour type individuals out there but as per like the people who are usually on this show you guys have a really unique skill set and experience and i wanted to talk a little bit about motor learning you know we'll, we'll jump to the question of in a sport like parkour or you could say even like rock climbing for example too like there's a lot of different problems it's not just one thing like running the 100 meter dash in the process of parkour how often or how do you find yourself coaching i should say if it's track, it's like, all right, we're going to work on your technique. You know, like we're going to do this and this and that. But it's been talked about on this podcast before, Andy Ryland, like in youth sports, in early on, it's decisions. That was a good decision, like working on decisions. So what's the balance of like in, in coaching individuals in parkour, like decisions and roots versus actual technique and technical execution? How does that shake out for you guys' instruction? You want to take that one first, Charles? Sure, I'll take that first. So I, I've actually seen it kind of break down differently and vary depending on like age, training goal, and experience. So I think beginner adults have mainly been socialized to expect technique and want to break things down. So for beginner adults specifically, it's probably a 70-30 split between like technique versus decisions. But this is mainly because technique gives them a like a movement vocabulary, which like in the parkour context gives them like the parkour vision. So it gives them like comprehension of affordances in the environment. Like as Rob Gray would say, it's like they'll see a ledge they can jump to if they know the technique of like, oh yeah, I can jump and land on something with my hands, like with my hand, catch with my hands and my feet. Whereas it might not show up to their visual field if they haven't been refreshed on that climbing approach. Um, but once you hit like the intermediate adults, um, then it's situational goals, it's decisions, it's run this course as fast as you can, traverse this gap, however works best for your body, like th flow through this space without stopping or stuttering for 10 seconds. And that's actually similar to how kids get coached because they don't have the preconceived notion, at least in my experience, you have to hold their attention as we were talking about the sports. So it is goal oriented again, it's running the courses, playing the games, having fun, and then as they become advanced practitioners, that's where specific technique comes in. And the technique is more for aesthetics or to give them a new challenge to try and like coordinate their body. Yeah, so that, that's kind of how I've seen it 
show up with the various age ranges that I've coached, at least in getting the most progression out of the sport and the most comfort and joy out of the athletes. Yeah. My, my experience has been interesting because I, I came into parkour as a gymnastics coach, right? So I, I was used to the very atomized kind of linear coaching model that they use in gymnastics and breaking things down into pieces. And that was my big advantage early on in parkour as a coach was that I could decompose the movements in parkour much more efficiently than most of the other coaches who were out there. I could see component pieces and how athletes didn't have them. One of the kind of classic examples that I like to give is there's a movement in parkour called the climb up. So you have both hands on top of a ledge on a wall and your body is your feet are on the wall, pushing your body away from the wall. And then you try to pull and essentially muscle up over the wall. Early on, there was very few athletes who could do this symmetrically with both arms pulling. And most athletes were putting an elbow on top and then going up with the other, the other side. And there was a, a few guys who could do it symmetrically with both arms going up at once in, in the, the American parkour scene. It was particularly um, Ryan Ford, who was one of Charles's teachers, was one of the guys, Levi Muenberg and, um, and Tyson Cheka, who was my uh, old business partner. And what I noticed was, I don't know about Ryan, but both I saw both Levi and Tyson tell people that they would push on the wall with both feet when they were going to do their climb up. But when they did the climb up themselves, they would drop one leg, and drive their knee up. And I realized that what they were doing was essentially using the free leg as a kipping mechanism, like a kipping pull up that we were, you know, that you'd see in uh, in CrossFit or like a, a kip in, in gymnastics. And so I started teaching people that and, and taking it out of context. So I would decontextualize it and have people just practice the knee drive, or I would have them do like cat backs, which is a skill where you're from that, that starting position, which we call a cat in parkour, you would uh, jump off the wall to something else. So you'd step up the wall and jump off. So I, I started by building this very, this system of like breaking things down into component pieces. And when I went to start, I had started in a gymnastics gym and then we built a, then we we're teaching how to cross it. And then we built a, a custom made parkour facility. When I started teaching people primarily nature, cause that was what I, where I was training. What I discovered was that a lot of the, the movements that I expected to have to decompose for people and then to give them a lot of cues to get them through, they just automatically self-organized in the new environment. So I got really interested in the idea of how do we use the environment to guide the move. So around, you know, around that time I was introduced to the I method. I actually first came across the idea of the I method through uh, Matt Thornton from the straight blast gym system of MMA training. And he talked about, you introduce a skill, you isolate the skill, and then you integrate it. And then within, you know, the movement culture, there was Edo portals, introduce, integrate, improvise, right? So we had that idea. But what I noticed was that what seemed like a better model to me was give the athlete an, a task to explore that is related to the skill that you're trying to achieve. Let them come up with what solutions they have and then shape those solutions. If you can, by try, trying to change the task constraints, and then if necessary, by giving them specific sort of conceptual understandings. So a classic example would be the step vault in parkour, right? So you're going to put one hand on the object, one foot on the object and step through with your foot. Now, what a lot of people will do is they're, they're not comfortable with the mobility of stepping through fully. So if we take a decomposition method, what we can do is we can put them on the ground 
and get them in that position and have them do the step through. And you'll see this happens in Kapwada, it's in Animal Flow. MoveNet calls it a tripod step through, and you can spend a lot of time just on the ground working on that. What's interesting is it's actually harder to do on the ground, but it's not necessary because given a low log in the woods, lots of people will just adopt this thing without ever having any instruction on it at all. So do we need to go through and like break down every piece of where your hand's supposed to be and how your fingers are supposed to be oriented and where your foot's supposed to be and how are you going to pull through? Or do we just want to actually manipulate the constraints such that it becomes the obvious solution? So we can do that. Then the next thing you have is that people will, will instead of stepping all the way through on the backside, they'll flop down with both feet 90 degrees from the direction that they began. And the constraint that you're often in is I'm teaching this vault and then everyone's going to go back in line and do the vault again. In that case, that movement's adaptive because they're, they're, they're traversing a, a U. And so when they get to the end of the U, it makes sense to go back. But in the application of the step vault, very often we actually want them to be able to go straight forward. So we can tell them, I want you to take three steps out of it, or I want you to step fully down onto this leg. Or we can just put like two steps away, two strides away, a precision jump setup and have them do step vault, two steps, stride or uh, precision jump. And then you'll automatically see them start to organize a better pattern. Some athletes, that's not going to work. They'll organize somewhat better, but they won't get the full step through. Then you have a decision to make as a coach. Is it because they lack mobility and strength that you then need to go dr uh, drill and build? A lot of times we think there are technical fixes and it's, it's a physical problem. Or is it just like an awareness? And when it's an awareness, a lot of times what I've found is that athletes are kind of thinking of the skills as independent expressions rather than as having intention towards something. So what I like to do is teach principles before techniques. So before I get to, here's why you should step your leg fully to the ground, I start introducing the idea of like having control of the rhythm of your movement so that each foot placement and hand placement is contributing to the overall direction of your movement and then having control of the direction of your inertia are you moving is your movement taking you in the direction you're actually trying to go and then your displacement how far up and down are you going and once people start to internalize the principles of flow the technical refinements are often fairly obvious because they make sense and they're contextualized but most of the teaching I see goes the opposite direction, mm -hmm. right? You say, this is the right way to do the step fall, but the athlete doesn't know why it's right, which actually creates problems. So classic example that you'll see a lot in parkour is in a lazy vault, if you're trying to go straight forward. So in a lazy vault, you're going to swing your legs over an object. Well, you're going to post one hand and then swing your legs over the object. So the correct way to do that is to catch behind you with the free hand. So both hands push you away from the object at the end. This is correct if you want to go straight forward out of the thing, or if you want to turn towards the second hand. But if you're trying to turn in the direction of the first hand, swinging your second hand down is actually moving you away from your direction of travel and disrupting that control of the direction of inertia that you're looking for. But you'll see lots of coaches coach athletes that this is just the right way to do it. Right. Same thing. Sometimes people will do a step vault with the, the, the same side leg up with their hand instead of contralateral. And again, you'll see people tell them that's wrong, but there's lots of situations where it's actually adaptive in a course to step 
reach down with your hand and swing your leg around. So if we use this constraint focus and principle focus before we dig down into the techniques, we're going to get a much more robust learning system in the long term. That's, that's my philosophy around it. Yeah. I mean, you would just say that's whereas the typical coaching philosophy that is, is it's almost more like masculine to feminine. If you ever even get to feminine, it's just all, you know, d- mechanics, details, yeah. put your arm here, da, 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 da. And then maybe let's get into some like, I don't know, external cues or analogies at some point online, right? Like versus like, and this is, I guess, kind of how I go about it is like you said, like set up the environment first and explain like you know people know why they're doing there's there's like an excitement and emotion there's an environment and the body gets a chance to solve and then it's like okay find the people who can't and now maybe we have to go in and treat you more like a mechanic i mean in my world a little bit more of like running sprinting jumping i've gotten really into the biomechanics and if someone can't run or jump in a certain way there's a certain constraint i'm giving them and they can't do it it's like okay well what's going on at your pelvis mechanically <laughs> what's going on with your femur your femur rotation your tibia rotation what are your feet aligned like what's your rib cage doing like then okay now maybe let's look at what about that in your structure is preventing you from solving this problem the way that the bandwidth the to get in the bandwidth i would like you to be at and that's kind of like that's how i viewed it is you start with the constraints in the environment and you know hopefully it's exciting and and all those boxes are checked and then if someone needs it then okay let's now for me it's like more the skeleton and those elements at least that's one of the first technical i try to stay away from internal cues for the most part because those you know, we, you've that shows a rob gray and uh, things like that but i mean is that basically the same you know I, am i kind of repeating back to what you said maybe in a different way would that kind of be the the gist of what you were talking no, about i think i think it's very aligned um and i do think that it's important you know i do think that we can go too far with the idea that that you don't you know you don't want to be mechanical or 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 sort of technical cue oriented ever. I think there's really a, a point at which it is valuable, but you have to ask the question. Uh, so I'm training at a local Ninja Warrior gym, and there's a young guy who it turns out used to like be at the parkour jams that I organized ten years ago, and he's like, "Oh my god, you recognize?" So then he, he's working on his front flips. He's like, "Okay, tell me what I'm doing on this front flip." And he's like, "Am I tucking tight enough, or am I am I doing this?" And I was like, well, I can tell you what you did, or I can tell you what you should do, but that doesn't mean that on the next repetition, you'll be able to do it, right? There's a little bit more problem solving that goes into that. So how do we set up a constraint that's going to allow you to start expressing the behavior that you're, you're trying for? Because telling someone to just tuck tighter during a front flip may work sometimes, but there's a good chance that it won't, right? Like right now, I, I sprained my ankle really badly in November. so. I've been working it back and it's, you know, I've gotten a lot of abilities back, you know, pretty close to having like a 30 inch vertical, uh, standing vertical again, but you can see that mechanically it's not right. And so I'm watching video myself and I can see that like, you know, if you think about that early stance in gait is externally rotated at the hip, right at the femur and late stance is externally rotated and the middle is supposed to be that where we go into the internal rotation and pronation. So you know, we've had this discussion of like, we need that. We have to access that pronation. We have to access that IR. It's an important aspect of, of how we control movement, but there is a pathological expression of it where we go in too fast and we spend too much time there. And that does potentially predispose us to these knee problems. And so you can see in me right now that basically I'm, I'm collapsing into the IR position really fast. So like think collision management, 
there's not a lot of eccentric control of that motion towards the, the internally rotated position. And then I'm spending almost the entirety of the gait cycle on that leg in that internally rotated position, very pronated and with my foot turned out. So I need to fix that. But how, right? You can tell me to turn my foot in or to, you know, like externally rotate your femur. It's not going to work. <laughs> it's, it'll be a compensation. Right. You're, you're going to compensate. Oh, you're, you're, they can't, yeah. can't, they can't move. Or you're not firing your glutes enough. Fire your <laughs> glutes more, right? That, that glute medius needs to, to pull that, that hip out. So what's, what's actually the constraint, right? So like, you know, we're, we're trying to figure that out with me. And, you know, part of it is like um, uh, one of the questions you, you talked about is like feeding the error. Right. So we know that's there. So one of the th- ways that we're playing with it is like, how do I get more perceptual awareness of what's going on? Well, we're putting bands on my leg, that pull me into that internally rotated position and forcing me to do tasks where I'm going to tend to destabilize that direction, but with enough control that I can, that I can get control of it. Right. So that's, that's one level of doing it. But what it looks like the, the, the latest thing that I found with my physical therapist is that there seems to be like a physiological block on the lateral glide of my tibia. And I literally just need the, the therapist to go in there yeah. and open it up and then to return, right? So sometimes you literally just, it is like a mechanical problem. You have to go and get the mechanic to fix the thing. So as coaches, we have to be able to think in these levels of systems, right? Is it because the glute doesn't fire well, or is it because the tibia is not able to glide at all? Or is it because it's a habitual pattern that the athlete has and there's no physiological limitation? We just need to, to do some differential learning or feed the error so mm-hmm. that they can actually start recognizing and having a kinesthetic mapping to control the position. So that's, that's some of the ways that I am thinking about how we access those layers within coaching. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. And well, I kind of want to chime in on that because um, I, I, I took that method, that kind of inverse of the eyes away from you, Rafe. And what I found is like, it allows me to go through those different levels much more efficiently and much more as needed as a coach rather than a long prolonged, this is how we do it. And we work people through. So it's like my approach with a lot of skills recently is like, pick the highest progression of the skill that can be failed safely. So with like a vault, you know, have them vault over something that's maybe a little padded or something, or just have something soft on the other side. So if they're like, you know, sand or sand or a mat or something to where it's like, if they fail the vault, you know, they're not falling on sharp rocks. Um, like, you know, or, or like, like skinning their knee, um, as they do it. Um, but the cool thing about that is, is if I demo a vault, uh, demo that progression of the vault over it and everybody does the progression, we've just saved a ton of time that would have normally in the traditional model been spent of like 15 minutes of here's doing the vault on the ground. Here's doing it without speed. Now here's doing it with a slight jog. Now here's doing it with a jog and then jumping to something. It's like, if you can just do it, then cool. We've saved 15 minutes. We can spend 15 more minutes keeping you engaged, having you have fun and building off of where your current skill level is at. And then for like the 20 to 10% of students that aren't at that skill level, maybe, which is often what happens. That's where you can then see the part that's failing and then either go into the biomechanical models or go into like specific external cues or, or visualizations that might help get them to where they need to be with the rest of the group. And it's just, it's so much more efficient. I've saved so much teacher talking time. People get so many more 
reps and sets and like experiences in because i mean they're they're paying to be there to do the thing they're not paying to listen to you talk like that's what podcasts are for you know (laughs) so it it is funny it's like yeah even like private sector versus working at a university too it's been mentioned on this podcast a few times like if you have athletes at a university like they have to listen to you you know you're the strength coach like they have like they don't they don't get to like fire you i mean i guess they could if they really didn't like you maybe they could talk to their coach and that you know but like in the in the private sector, it's different. Like, and I I do think there's an interesting line. Like in the private sector, some people show up and it's like, oh, aren't you? Aren't I paying you to coach me, right? And but what if you can just go do all these things and you're just fine? You know, you're fine. And I think that's maybe where the philosophy comes in. Like you have to build the story of why are we just doing this constraint? And I'm not necessarily you know not holding your hand through it. I'm letting you go. And like I think maybe that's where that I just kind of maybe I solve my own problem because I think about that sometimes. You know, like I tend to be very hands off unless I have to be like you said like there's the 10 20 percent who don't get it let's step in maybe there's some like you know some external cues some variable learning some structural things we have to go clean up but it's maybe that makes that that idea a little easier private sector like what am I paying you for you know if you're just letting me go ahead and uh, <laughs> go ahead and just have yeah, at it and yeah. that yeah being able to build the story of of here we go like this is why versus uh, I think storytelling is that yeah fits with that philosophy and that so I think framing the experience they're, they're like, we're talking, you know, I think a lot of the talk in the motor learning world right now is like how much words can actually get in the way. Right. So we can be like, we're recognizing how much the way that we frame thing, the way that the words that we use, how much they can actually just get, they can, they can actually tell the athlete the wrong thing. <laughs> they can get them to focus on the wrong thing, or they can just be unabsorbable. Right. Like maybe you're telling them something good that, that if they could figure it out would really help their movement. But if it's like, if they can't, if it doesn't actually penetrate into the body, it's just consuming attentional resources they could have available, just doing the skill without any cues. Right. So it's easy to sort of then want to reject the, the almost reject the verbal part of coaching almost entirely. But I think there's a huge difference between sort of framing and, and giving philosophy and giving a connected narrative around what you're doing and over cueing the actual skills. And I've found storytelling is, is incredibly powerful in motivating students and, you know, just social interaction, right? You're there as a support, right? You know, if nothing else, maybe you're their, you're their hype man while they're doing things. So you don't have to be like, knees out knees out you just be like go right you just give them give them or just to be like that was awesome you know that that kind of stuff does matter to people and your ability to to, to really empathize and be excited about their journey that's going to be powerful just tangenting back a second uh one of the the rules that we have with with evolve move play is based on you know what, what charles was saying about like start start higher in the skill a development chain like don't always try to descend mm-hmm. to the lowest thing like there is almost this strategy of like we have to check off the function of every single joint in your body before you're allowed to try a movement uh, do you have the prerequisites for big toe dorsiflexion and abduction and then then we'll let you sprint it's like this is this is impossible you're never going to get anywhere right there's a point at, like like literally you could go down to the atomic level of a human being if you want to go to a deep enough level of analysis, but you're never going to be able to build back up from there. Right? it's just way too complicated. 
So what our, our role with Evolving Play is always trying at the highest level of complexity that allows the adaption that's sought for. Because you're going to get more, right? Like I can almost, I can drop into very close to a split always. And I haven't trained it at really ever, but I don't train it, right? I don't intentionally train it at all. But I did Taekwondo or Tang Sudo when I was between six and seven years of old. And I threw thousands of head kicks. And then I did Muay Thai. I just have kicked at people's heads a lot over my life, which requires that mobility. So I'm not saying that if someone's listening to this and that a, a split is their goal, that that's necessarily going to be the, the tool that gets them there. But my point is that something as high order as actually doing martial arts skills can give you mobility. But you could spend years trying to perfect your mobility and not have any functional physical athletic skills to show for it. The so if you can, if you can splits without having to do the splits, it's better. So I was just thinking, it just got me thinking of Bobby White was just on recently basketball skills coach and strength coach. And he was just talking about having actually using velocity, increasing the velocity as a constraint for like different moves on the court. Like, and that actually being able to clean things up uh, just because yeah. it, and it's like, it goes with what Charles is saying. Like, it's like, we're so regressive minded, like, oh, we have to be, you have to be able to do this little thing first and then do this thing. And, you know, like having kids too, like I, I was, I, every now and then. It's funny, I took physical education, some physical education courses in my college coursework. And one of the courses that I did wasn't excited about back then, but I love now was motor learning. But it was motor learning from a PE perspective. And it was just like the stages of child development. Like, how does a child learn to throw a ball? Well, here's the first thing they do. Basically, they don't they don't really turn their body, they just use their arm. Then they step into it. Then they and every now and then, like my I'll like I was just videoing my son, who's three, almost four, throwing a baseball the other day, just because I am so blown away by how his body self-organizes. And it's like, I almost want to remind myself that this is, this is the, the complexity that is possible at this, at three, like a three-year-old can do the complexity. I mean, seriously, like, you know, if you put, if you took his body and how he's doing it and just put it in an adult body, he'd probably be throwing 60 miles an hour. Like it's, I mean, there's a lot of complexity that we are innately capable of and way more than I think that it's given credit for. And the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, as you guys are talking, I've been thinking about this is I think so much, if someone could just measure like the efficiency rating of a coaching practice in terms of like how much is just such a profound waste of time. Like athletes, what I've learned is good athletes will be good athletes. Like they will, you know, the, the idea is they can accomplish in spite of, I'm always just thinking, well, how much time did they waste that they could have been doing something else or from a sustainability perspective? Because I think you... I think wasting time doing minutia that's boring or like, or like even like doing too much lifting because we want to make sure we're strong enough and like going that extra mile just to make sure we're strong enough. Like I look at some of those things as just taking, I don't know, it's just stuff that you don't need in there that kind of chips away at the session over a long period of time. That's at least the thought I've been having a lot recently. Yeah. Sometimes like, sometimes I think about that Alan Iverson quote, practice, we're talking about practice, right? <laughs> Like there, there is a point where it's too much, right? And we, we, we valorize the Kobe Bryant's, right? Because it's a Protestant work ethic culture. And we don't realize that there may be temperamental and physiological reasons why someone like Kobe Bryant thrives on what he's doing and why Allen Iverson might not, right? It's not necessarily that if you take an Allen Iverson and you make him do what Kobe did, he would, he would be way better than he was. He probably could have used more discipline, right? 
but he might have not been so far from the optimal strategy for him. You have to think about the fact that he's like 160 pounds, incredibly explosive, throwing himself against all these giants in the paint every night and think, okay, how much extra practice could his body handle versus Kobe's who's 6'7 and 210, right? 220 probably by the end of his career. It's a very different type of, uh, type of, of body, you know? And I think Kobe was more naturally aerobic, whereas I think Allen Iverson was very much like a fast twitch individual, which also, you know, has to do with how much, you know, kind of load you can put on that system and expect it to respond well to. So I don't know if that was, was totally a tangent there, but um, we, we do have to think about these things. And I guess the other one that, that was popping in my head was, uh, have, you, have you ever worked or have you, have you run into Mike Cunliffe? Yeah, I know. Sprint coach. I know you trained with him. Yeah, in the yeah, past. yeah. You know, so he has a pretty good record. You know, his daughter was six-time national champion, I think, in her age class. And that year, uh, one of the athletes who was sprinting with us, Tatum Taylor, I think, was like the, the fourth fastest 16-year-old in the country, ran like a 10.33. So he's got some really fast athletes he's worked with. But what I was shocked about with practice with him was he just didn't manage much. Like, there was a lot of the practice that was literally just like the kids standing around being social, right? Because, you, you know, he was really big on, he was a, you know, short to long coach, you know, super long rest period. So it's like for every 10 yards that you sprinted, you rested for a minute, right? So when you did a 180 yard sprint, like if you do 380 yard sprints, that's your, that's your entire practice. <laughs> and, and most of that practice is literally the, just the kids like messing on their phones and talking to each other. And he, he did almost no coaching in between the sprints, right? It was like the structure of the, of the, of the session was do the, do this work and take these rests. And there was minimal technical cueing and he produced these really, really, really fast athletes. I was like gobsmacked how, how little you needed to, to, to intervene with the athletes over the course of a session to produce incredibly fast athletes. So I think that, that le- that's a, a lesson in the, the potential power of minimalism. I wouldn't necessarily say that's the optimal way to do it, but I think there's a real lesson for a lot of coaches who are anxious about whether they're doing enough in every moment. Yeah. I find that more yeah. coaches, in, as I've met, are more anxious about, did we do enough? Like the, that is by far the dominating versus mentality versus being caught feeling like you didn't do enough. Like it's a maybe you said Protestant work ethic thing a little bit too. I think maybe it's just wired in all of us. We always want to make sure we did enough, but to be able to go the other way from time to time to test that out, like, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, I'll say too, like just quickly before you go, Charles, like I think that's like uh, working with swim coaches for a while and like the taper, it's almost like that's like where the inverse of all the training comes in. And almost always at the end of the year, you'd hear if someone didn't swim fast or the t- and swimming is different than all the other sports in the, in the ta- like track, you might taper like, a decent amount but not a ton swimming is like it's all about the taper and it's a massive i think it's to overcompensate for the psychological difficulty of t- uh, swimming in a way compared to other sports maybe i've always thought about why is taper so much bigger than that but like the coaches will then say if an athlete didn't swim very well a lot of times like man i should have just rested him a little bit longer i should have done less than that you know and it's like there you now get to see you at least now get to live in this okay now it's less now it's less now it's less and and have that be a very intentional element of it so so I just wanted to throw that in there. Charles, I know you had something that you were going to say there. Well, yeah, yeah. I kind of just wanted to summate all that, which is like, you know, talking about what you're talking about earlier too, just bringing it all together. Like the more time 
the athletes spend in their actual sport or games or courses or like skill challenges, like you'll be able to see the, the more of the specific things that need to be addressed will be highlighted. So this actually kind of like, you know, going to the, like, how much should I be queuing? How much work should I be doing? I got a great rule of thumb, which I got from a tricking coach named Dan Perez, uh, which he said, like, I try and avoid giving a cue until I've seen somebody do something at least three times because like Dan Perez used a juggling example, oddly is like, if they're dropping the same ball every time, they're falling into a pattern, like a, a suboptimal pattern or towards the skill you're trying to achieve. But if they're dropping different balls every time, they're like, there's nothing to necessarily correct there because they're making their own corrections and probably just overcorrecting every single time. So in that regard, like it's a sign they're trying to organize themselves. So you don't need a coach yet because even if you give them something, if they're doing something different every time, chances are they, they can't even organize themselves around your queue yet because they clearly don't know what their body's doing. So it's kind of pointless. But then too, like if it's different every time, what, what are the chances that they'll do the thing you're going to suggest next time? There is a chance. You don't know. It's like probably, you know, so like watching things play out and letting people play does make you do less, but the whole point is they do more and they get better. And then you can make the interventions that are necessary, not just doing the interventions for the sake of like imposing yourself and your role into the space. Yeah. It makes me, what you said makes me think about um, when Rob Gray was on uh, this podcast recently, I asked him about good variability and bad variability, or at least the topic came up. And that kind of makes me think about it. like the bad variability is where you kind of make the same repeated mistake over and over again with the same, like, I'm trying to say, remember how Rob said it, but I think that captures the gist of it a little bit. Whereas the good variability is the body's trying to adapt to different, or maybe you don't know yet what exactly the strategy is. But I do think there's something to be said about making the same mistake over and over again and the level of bad variability that we now have to bring something in that can help the athlete, you know, self-organize a little bit more effectively. Yeah. And you, you'll only see it if you let them do the stuff enough. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think Nick Winkleman has highlighted a study where they, um, I remember, I'm not sure if I heard him talk about this or read it in his book, but they looked at like queuing on every rep, queuing on every third rep, queuing on every fifth rep. And I think it was out to every 10th rep. They found that like every decrease in uh, queuing <laughs> increased the athlete's performance. Right. And, and he talked about that as specifically as the idea that basically when you cue too often, you're going to be pointing the athlete's attention to basically noise, right? So if there is something about the way that I moved that wasn't right in this rep, but it's only ever going to show up in this rep, correcting me on that for the next rep is now devoting attentional resources to a problem that doesn't occur. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, so you can imagine that like, if someone's learning a Kong vault or learning to, you know, do their, their, their block takeoff and it's like their first exposure to it, they're going to generate a ton of different movement errors, right? Many of which are going to be ephemeral. They're going to occur one time. So if, 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 you know, if, if there's like a hundred ways that it can go wrong and you're trying to get the athlete to think about all of them, <laughs> it's, it's going to be impossible for them to devote the attentional resources. Whereas if you let the, the system solve for it, then you look for those, those suboptimal, basically, 
you know, the, those local optimums essentially where someone gets stuck in a suboptimal pattern, but they can't get out of it because it's, it's the way that they've organized, right. With my ankle right now, or uh, one that, one that I've seen is that when you teach parkour in a gymnastics gym, a lot of athletes will adopt a, uh, what's called a punch takeoff where they push both feet into the ground when they're doing like a Kong ball, which is actually optimal in the gymnastics scenario because the floor gives you the rebound that you need your legs to give you outdoors. So you, you know, that's a situation where it's like, you kind of have to cue and break the athlete out of that situation because they are actually optimizing correctly for the environment that they're in. It's just not representative of the environment in which you want the skill to be optimized for. Yeah. It is interesting to think about. And yeah, I've, I've said that, that study you brought up rape, like with the one out of every one, three, five, ten. Like I've ever since I heard that from you, along with the the mental, like you think you're running faster or slower. I've I've used I've alluded to that on this podcast a few times, and it was a uh, Kibway Johnson with the uh, the Dow with the the hammer as he goes by. It's like he said something that was just so good. It was basically like from the time that athlete starts that hammer throw, which is a singular skill. It's not like a like parkour or basketball. Like everything I say to them is going to take something away from the potential of that throw. And it's like, it was, it was in like, I don't know what verse it was in the Tao Te Ching. I was just re- reading this and it kind of stuck with me. I might've mentioned it on Bobby White's podcast, but like, or the one Bobby White was on, but it's like, you have this container and it's an empty container and it's awesome. Like the container works. So the jar works because it's empty. And if I'm the yeah. coach, like everything I pour in or fill in that space, I, I am reducing the potential of that container for what it's meant to be. And so it's just like, mm-hmm. I think you know, that's not to say we never, you know, do anything, but it's just like, you want to really choose what you, how you intervene carefully outside of encouragement and creating environment, like you said, the philosophy, when we get into the more instructional elements, I just think we need to be really careful because we look at the athlete as that container and how are we, how are we influencing that container? Are we taking away from their potential of what that movement could be? Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you had Nick on because like his book was incredibly helpful for me to where now when I do give a cue, I don't give people more than two things to focus on at a time. Most like 90% of the time, it's one thing to focus on in a given cue as well, which again, my talk time is one sentence, (laughs) which gives the athletes so much more time to actually train. And then that's where you can get those 10 reps in and give a cue is it's not like, Oh, well the person only gets 10 attempts and that's the whole hour. Because if you're only saying one sentence, they can get 10 attempts and it's been 10 minutes. And then you can say another sentence. <laughs> so you, you still can give value. It's just dispersed and succinct rather than upfront and heavy. Yeah. yeah. I think the idea of attention as a resource that's limited and, and saying the athlete always already has demands on their attention within whatever task that they're given. Are you, is, you, is the cue that you're going to give them going to help them with organization sufficiently to to ameliorate the costs of you actually demanding something of their attention right like i love the idea that you know i think the 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 schema that they use in in like the ecological dynamics model of education of attention intention and, and calibration of action as the kind of fundamental things that we're achieving within motor control i think it's a really really valuable thing when we talk about that idea of the cup it's like the cup is like how much attention they have to give at least that's one way to think about it, right? And so there's so much that's already going to be demanded in the performance of the skill, right? Some of that bandwidth is already demanded. So the more 
extra constraints that you're producing verbally on the athlete, the more potential you're actually now taking away attentional resources that they need in order to be able to concentrate on what they're doing. Like I've, I've done this with coaches, like I've, I've worked with some, some folks who, uh, who are great acrobats in the parkour community. And I've been like, Hey, help me with this acrobatic skill. And <laughs> this huge stream of stuff comes out. I'm like, okay, I need you to give me one cue on this next rep. That's all I need to think about one thing for the next rep. And that, that helps a lot. And I like, I will, I will do that with my athletes too. Right. I'll give them permission. Be like, I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's such a great thing as a coach to be like, check your cues with your athletes. Just like they need feedback on their movement. You need feedback on your coaching. So you say, okay, you're going to do a backflip. I want you to spot that, that point on the wall as you do this backflip. Right? And you say, okay, did that feel like it helped you organize better? Was the skill easier to achieve when you tried that? Yeah. No, I, I've used similar things. And I like to think of cues as like heuristics rather than mm-hmm. like set in stone, like stone tablet laws. It's like, did it work? Did it get us to accomplish the goal or did it take us further away from the goal? Both of those are good information, especially if you're thinking about verbiage and terminology. If you give somebody a verb and they like push off the ground and all of a sudden they don't jump as high, then you know something about the nature of pushing is not what they need. So maybe you shift their attention to being like, reach your body towards the ceiling you know, something instead, and maybe they compress less and then they get more rebound stuff, stuff like that. So, yeah, but like, that's the thing is unless you, I, I like that you check in with them on that rave. Um, and I've, I've done similar myself to where like, I'll actually even remind a student where it's like, if we find a cube cue, I'm like, remember this, remember that, like staring at the wall staring at the like staring at up at the wall is what you need to do for this like all like just keep it in your head so that it's reinforced yeah i mean i think the, the idea of i think that that idea of educating the the student to identify for themselves the cue that's actually helping them mm-hmm. and to be able and have permission to reject cues that don't work for them is especially really valuable for coaches, for a lot of coaches who are like, if you're, you know, the, the private sector, like you are, and you're working with, you know, high school team athletes, collegiate team athletes, there's a good chance that you're one piece of a, of a team of coaches who are probably variable in competency. So if you can install in that student a way to respectfully sort of stay within what works for them and be able to like say, okay, yeah, thanks, but no thanks to that cue. I think it's going to help a lot uh, with those athletes being able to to sustain themselves through the the kind of maelstrom that that getting six different coaches input can be. Yeah, you know it's interesting too. Back to what you said, Rafe. Like way at the beginning about like how it's the way you go about it's kind of the opposite. Like typical, it's like all right, here's all these instructions and cues and fundamentals, and then maybe we'll get into some motor link stuff if that ever happens. And kind of going with the principles first. It it's it's interesting to me how many coaches are like these are my cues for this you know and like these are my and it's like everyone's gonna get them and it's just it just doesn't the conversation just doesn't happen enough like it if if anything and it, i think part of that is like the mentality of i am gonna coach these people like i i am going to do it versus i am a facilitator and as soon as you make the switch to i'm a facilitator now it is a conversation what did that cue like what did that cue elicit for you did you feel like it was helpful i mean 
I do think, too, there's always a pendulum. I do think you actually can get too far into the field for some people who are a little more wired to like, look, I want something concrete. I want something tangible. I'm sure you guys have been through that, too. I think that's always something, too, because we can always run away from one thing and then kind of run too far on the other side, too. So structure does provide uh, structure does provide comfort for a lot of people, for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've had this conversation a few times with I've heard you have this conversation, Joel, uh, too, as well, where like you're going to have these highly cognitive individuals who are going to want to really analyze everything as it's happening. And they're going to want to have like a big cognitive model of what's going on. They want to they want to get everything that's in the coach's mind. They think that they're going to be able to have high achievement because they understand all the models of achievement that are going on in the coach's mind. And I think it, that there's a way to meet that desire in the student while also not overloading them when they're actually in the movement. Right. So it's like, you can talk shop in between reps, but you want to sort of clear their mind and give them that clear, simple cue before they go. You don't want them to like, you can be like, okay, yeah, you have to, let's talk about ER and IR and compression and expansion, whatever it is, you know, you just don't want them to try to hold all of that in their head while they're actually performing the skill. Yeah. I think in the world of swimming, I almost saw, you almost saw both sides of that in the sense of there's athletes and I was able to work with very high level swimmers and swimming is an interesting medium because like you're talking about the cup and I feel like, like if you're playing like chase tag, for example, like that cup is pretty much completely overflowing just by the nature of what's going on. Like you couldn't, you couldn't do anything technical outside of it, right? With the environment. I mean, it's, I remember playing uh, return of the source, like playing chase tag in the the stream with all the rocks. Like that was literally like the most information I feel like I've gotten in a small space of time. It was amazing. And so I'm like, yeah, there you couldn't tell anyone anything, but, but then you go down to individual sports and down to swimming. That's like one stroke per second. It's kind of slow. And Based off of how someone's intaking information, some athletes, you know, I've seen athletes trained to uh, interact just like Kibway Johnson, the hammer, like this thing swinging around, you have to react to it. There's, you can train athletes to react and intake the water information and in the same way, like you take the information in parkour or whatever. But then it's also an easy sport to not think about that as much and just make, and intellectualize the whole thing. And a lot of swimmers are that way. They're very academic oftentimes and they like to take the intellectual approach how many strokes so where do i have my hand and arm and but it was interesting that the pretty much all the elites like the olympians they all were so like they all had their self-exploration process for the most part they all could tell me their process like it was always there i mean they were helped by the coaches for 100 percent. but pretty much without exception those athletes could all tell you their own individual it was always individual way that they had like explored and and used like and and swimming is so much like underwater kicking is so exploratory based because it's more sensory like you have to feel how your body works in the water versus i think we can when you get on the land and you don't have that it's just different so anyways all i was saying is it's a sport it's easy to intellectualize but i as i saw it the elites were always so good at their own process like every every one of them and then a lot of the ones that some of the ones on the college like level, not necessarily were like very much like, tell me what to do. I want you to tell me what to do. You know, they, they, they had this thing where they wanted to be told where to put their, their limb or things like that versus just breaking through that and being able to explore in a healthy way. So it just made me think about that. Yeah. How do you meet that need for cognition? Right. There's a, I really like, um, 
in, in understanding myself kind of unrelated to the movement particularly there's two psychological concepts here like one is um epistemic curiosity and the other is need for cognition right so some people just we have a you have a craving to engage with complex tasks cognitively so people are into like playing magic the gathering or like really hard complex video games those are expressions of need for cognition right or like math some people just get off on like let, let me do really complex you know figures in my head and then epistemic curiosity is like how much you want to know about the world so you can imagine that if someone is high in both of these traits and they come into a training environment a lot of those people are, are going to go on the, the path towards coaching but they're they're going to want to one like be mentally challenged while they're while they're there right they're going to want to absorb all the information and they're also going to be curious about how everything works and so if you if you're working with an athlete like that then you can give them lots of information but i think the problem that you're highlighting is that the information can a lot of times you, those athletes are the ones who later self-identify as not naturally talented right and they had to work hard and try to think their way through because they're actually they're they're trying to get information that's not actually that relevant to the performance of the movement right so they're often kind of awkward robotic looking movers so you're i think you know like in my own self description i would say i don't think that i was i think i was quite physically talented but my mind actually got in my way right and it took me a long time to like shut my brain down enough for the physical talent to express so if i was going to work with an athlete like myself what i would think is like how do i get that athlete to have autonomy in getting into the sensory felt aspect right rather than wanting to have all of that how does the hand feel in the water right yes. right so okay where should my hand be coach like well that that depends right <laughs> it depends on the information the water is giving you and it depends on the information the body is giving you and what i need to give you isn't the perfect position it's i need to help you get the right attention that's going to help you read the environment to get that information into you so that you can be adaptive in the situation so that's that's the problem i think that we have with with that kind of personality is how do we get them to be more focused on the, the perceptual information in the environment and getting on an autonomous relationship to it in the expression of their their sports skill. Yeah, it it reminds me of um I'm trying to I want to say his name was Bill Boomer. Um he just passed away. He was like a track coach who became a swim coach. I don't know why. Or like how I don't know but he like was really famous in motor learning because I think he brought this fresh view of motor learning from track to swimming and one of the drills that I saw him doing and actually I saw it being done on the women's swim team side at Cal. And this makes sense with the over-intellectual type person is it was like one swimmer just pushes the other one through the water and the swimmer has to find the line in the water. They're just experiencing the water as they get pushed. And like stuff, you know, stuff. And it's like, how can we do, I mean, that's very, you know, unique. It's the water, right? It's like not the land necessarily, but it also made me think a little bit about, and I do think that's good for the people who are tend to be overthinking. How can I start by drawing in sensation, taking you out of the intellectual I feel like games do that too, you know, but I, I remember at Return of the Source, one of the things that I had a little bit of a hard time with, maybe it was a little bit of a fear, like a comfort level, but it was like the rock climbing day, because I've done rock climbing. I hadn't in a, about five years uh, last summer, but it was like the, like a speed wall. Like it was just a rock speed wall. It wasn't like a nice indoor speed wall. It was like a rock speed wall. 
And you were just like, yeah, just run and climb up it. <laughs> it's like velocity is like, you. it's almost like by putting, and it was try to get up fast. It wasn't like try to take your time. It was run. Like those mount, like I've seen a few videos like mountain goats just jumping up the mountain, you know, like, and there's another like climbing variable speed learning thing. They're not, I'm sure they're not intellectualizing it at all. But like, that was really hard for me to, to, it was like a combination of fear. Like I'm afraid I'm going to slip down too far. Where do I put my foot first? Then I watch the other people do it. But it's like, there's not a coach there sitting. And eventually I got up it. And I, I think that I probably learned better because I had to like try it myself, watch other people do it, like think about it a little bit, but it was going fast. So I couldn't think about it too much. It's almost like the cure on some level is just do it faster and see what happens, you know? And uh, anyways, I, I like that. It made me think about that too. Yeah, the speed thing is interesting. I was thinking about that when that came up earlier because we often want to slow down and decompose things in order to do them and build them back up. But what we don't realize is that the motor control strategies that are relevant at high speeds aren't always the ones that are relevant at low speeds. So there might not be a transfer. Friends Bosch talks about this um, in Strength of Coordination Integrated Approach. He says that, and I don't know if this is completely true, but basically the transverse abdominus is the dominant um, you know, sort of spinal stabilizer in the, in the anterior core at low, low intensity activities. But when you reach high intensity activities, it completely switches to the rectus abdominis. So you, you could, you can be doing a movement at low intensity and you're going to be relying on this muscle system and you can educate that muscle system maybe as much as you want, but like, there's a certain intensity at which it's just not, it doesn't, can't do the job anymore. And the other, the other system has to turn on. And you can think about this as an analogy for any number of things that might be happening in the body. It's like you have to do it at the, the right speed in order to get the right organization. That's where the constraints come in because if we take people out and we say, okay, do this Kong belt over concrete and it like maybe has a sharp edge on it, there's a lot of organizational aspects that are, gonna, that are going to be driven by the fear aspect that you mentioned with, with running up the wall. And it can be hard for the athlete to to get the right type of organization when there's fear there. So how do we as coaches do a better job of recognizing when the, the environment isn't affording the athlete the type of organization that we want? Right? Can, we get, can we get them to play with more speed? Can we get them to, to be at a higher speed? Can we do that in a way that's actually safe for the athlete? Or are they limiting their speed because of a, of a, of a legitimate fear? Right. How do we get better at manipulating those constraints to make sure that, that, that they're in that optimal position to learn the strategy that's going to be stable going forward to higher levels of performance? I mean, I think, I think that's where um, kind of some of the differential learning stuff crops into where it's just like, if you get enough variety in, you can see at what point and in what situations certain things break down or certain things improve. I mean, I've noticed this, especially with like training acrobatics, like obviously a certain amount of speed needs to be in it in order to complete a freestanding flip. You can't slow it down past a certain line. But the other thing with it is the more momentum and speed you're carrying into it, the less muscle activation needs to occur because you're just displacing momentum rather than having to generate it through your body itself. So the cool thing about that is, is if like, if you're unsure what the student needs or 
if you're like, or if they're like in our scenario, we're talking about where somebody's really in their head and because they're in their head and overanalyzing, they're internally focused, you can create different scenarios. You know, you take them onto soft landings or you take the, or you spot them or you take them onto like a bouncing surface, like a trampoline or an air tract where you can remove certain elements that will get them out of their head to where it's like, oh, okay, I'm really internally focused on the jumping mechanic of a flip because I know my jump isn't good because I'm like flipping and landing low. And it's like, okay, you can tell they're internally focused. Their jump is not going to improve by them just repping and setting it because they just keep thinking about what their legs are doing. Put them on a trampoline. Now they don't have to think about their jumping. Now, and, and then they can get the shape in the air that can feel the extension. And then that's where the kinesthetic knowledge starts to come in that then can potentially carry back over. And the way you find out if it carries over is you just keep throwing them in different scenarios and seeing which scenarios lead to the positive adaptations versus the the, the negative ones. Um, or at least that's been my experience with learning pretty technically different, difficult skills like acrobatics. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about differential learning and like feeding air and with uh, with with acrobatics in particular because I, I still have this persistent problem with turning gather step front flips into Webster's. I've gotten it, it, I've mostly gotten over it, then I sprained my ankle, and now trying to come back and do the skills like my body's reverting in in to the pattern. And I was thinking it would be really interesting to like feed the air, you know, like have something that's automatic, like have a band attached to that back leg, trying to pull it up, see how that, that does it. And I've been thinking about corkscrews and like, you know, holding something in my hands as I do a corkscrew or trying to kick something in the air. I, I've been and thinking I, about holding a foam block for corks myself. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And then, and yeah. then I, I also yeah. like, I really love air tricks. Uh, like, I feel like there's a, there's so many organizational things that are different about using a, like a proper trampoline versus the ground, but the air trick is a, like a really nice kind of inter intermediate ground between those two, between those two things. It's like, you can learn your cork on a, on a trampoline and then you take it to an air trick and then you take it to the ground. But it's like, you take the cork from the, the trampoline to the ground. It's like, it's so different. The timing is absolutely completely different. Like it's just not the same at all. And I, the kind of stream of consciousness here is I was thinking about that in relationship to parkour and how I think parkour produces these incredibly robust movers because it has this immense amount of differential learning. But the problem is that I think that it, like I've been having a lot of conversations recently with folks who kind of struggled with parkour, right. And were able to adopt something similar and then kind of find their way in. And I think that a lot of it is the constraints involved in sort of city parkour outdoors are really a high barrier of entry mm. to most people. So it's like, if you're, you know, if you're a healthy, you know, young man in the peak of your testosterone flush at like 17 years old, it's like you can bail on concrete 10 times and wake up and, you know, not be that sore. <laughs> but, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're not, it's like the orthopedic cost of learning in this environment can be very high and you might not have the recovery to buffer it and get stronger from it. So, so I've been thinking about the role of like, how can we manipulate that environment better to open up the constraints in a way that's more welcoming to a broader variety of people? Yeah. I love that. I just want to have a few quick thoughts on that. Cause I know we don't have too much time left. Cause this, I mean, this does tie back into 
I guess, a theme of general human performance, general sports performance, wherever, wherever you are on the field is in maybe just like in general locomotion, like I've used for bounding, for example, I've had some of my best experiences using like variable bounding as a warm up. meaning instead of bound this way, here's a bunch of random ass cones and you have to bound and your foot has to land next to a cone each time. Maybe it's single leg, maybe it's double leg, whatever, maybe it's left, left, right, whatever. Same thing you could do in sprinting, take some mini hurdles, four, six inches tall, put them in, you know, if your average stride is two meters, maybe it's 190, maybe one's 220, maybe one's 150, you know, and you have to use that to warm up or, or whatever. Like it's, it's kind of like the parkour effect on a very low level. But I find that that is very, one, it's invigorating because it's a problem to solve. It's not just, it's starting from a philosophical level on the day. It's not starting from a remedial level. Let's like do all the basics and then run. It's like, no, let's start with that. But I love what you said about the nature because that's my thoughts on parkour before return to the source. And I'm always thinking like, if I have a group of athletes and it's a team, like, am I really going to go out in the city and like start jumping? Like, you know, no, like that's not feasible for anybody. But what if I have woods nearby? You know, like what if I have just a basic nature terrain features or even like Ted Ustarzynski who wrote this awesome jump book in the 90s, like back in like that kind of like Soviet, like I guess East German, like Poland, like their jumps were just destroyed and they would like do 200 repeats or 150 meter repeat sprints on like crazy terrains just because that's it worked well you know like i just love those ideas so i like that you mentioned because i'm always just trying to think of that variability and then getting into nature too i think we don't get enough of that and so i'm always just thinking of ideas for coaches just with any athlete population look if you have any nature nearby like for me i'm always kind of scoping out right like i could take athletes here and we would do this you know or like like even my own workouts a lot of times I will go to a certain, like there's a loop. It's like a mile loop near my house, all these trees. And there's like a few fallen logs on the path. There's a few overhangs and I'll do repeats on that. And I have to hurdle a few trees. I have to duck under a few trees and it's, and I have to go up and down a little bit. And it's so much more. And I do it in like minimal shoes because the terrain's kind of rocky and it's just such a better, there's just so many things built into that experience. I just, anyways, that's just, sorry. I'm just glad you brought the nature point. Cause I think that there's a point where we can all meet in the middle whatever population we're in we can't if i'm coaching the college basketball team coach probably isn't gonna like it if we go out and start doing like big huge concrete bench you know jumps in precision landing on that bench the center's like you know <laughs> like I, you know I, it just wouldn't work very well but i just find versions of this that anyone can do i just think is really helpful yeah if we go back to the first, the beginning of the episode discussion of the king of the course like what made it work well was the sandy beach and the round logs right yeah. so there's no sharp edges and when people get pushed off the log they land on the sand so nature has kind of inherently done that for me and like i noticed the constraints like we talked about the, the step fall like one of the big things about teaching people parkour in the city is sharp concrete edges and rails are scary so people will have a harder time adopting a bunch of the self-organization things that happen in in parkour if you're asking them to do it for the first time on a rail right there's there's fewer options for the average person in moving over a rail or a concrete ledge concrete wall than moving over a similar height rounded tree limb that won't smack you down nearly as hard and then also there's more there's more variability there's more differential learning that happens in the natural environment anyways right so you know, if you have a series of walls, they'll, they'll tend to have the same exact sort of profile that your foot is going down or very similar. 
you have a series of rocks in the woods that are going to have very different profiles. So you're going to get more, more stimulation of that when you, when you move across it. But I think if we start thinking about it from a constraint approach, we can see that we, we can get some of those things that the natural environment provides by intentionally manipulating constraints more. The, the guys from Storer have started taking rock climbing pads out uh, training. Pretty simple thing, right? Rock climbers do this every time they go out to rock climb. But it actually changes what you can comfortably do and how you can prepare. And one of the classic things that we do in parkour is if, you, if you're going to do a big running jump, you'd run and jump and jump in front of the object that you're going to. But sometimes this, this means that, you, that while you're sort of preparing yourself, while you're rehearsing, you're taking like a six-foot drop over and over again from a massive run-up. And that's just punishing on the legs. So if you bring that rock climbing mat out and you get, you get to land on that every time that you're doing your rehearsal jump, you know, it might not teach you the same thing mentally, but it can be much more sustainable on your legs to be able to work up to that jump that you want to do. And being able to think about the manipulation of constraints in that sense, I think, could make the parkour practice more effective for people and more something that we could easily bring a broader population into. Well, I mean, that, that even goes back to just the scalability thing where it's like, you know, having six-year-olds play with like adult-sized basketballs, like it's more intimidating. It's more cumbersome. Like in the parkour context, outdoors, we can't move stuff around at gyms or in nature, you know, you can roll a rock or you can put a log somewhere else. Like, you know, so I think in, in sports in general, the idea of differential learning is more of like a, how can you make organic progression? and have like a bottom up, like self self actualized progression to where like in a lot of my jumping classes in the parkour stuff, like I will set up a bare minimum jump that I think everybody can make and focus on like the control of it. But then, you know, I set up two or three other jumps of varying degrees because, you know, I've got students of different heights and different athletic levels to where it's like people need to be challenged appropriately. But I tell everybody, try all of them. It's like, even if you can make the really big one, do the small one because there's still going to be information to be gained from that and like fine motor control that you're going to want to have because not every jump is your max jump. And I know like that's kind of an, that's kind of a mentality that I think builds such robust athletes for like parkour or like in skiing or other like skateboarding and other stuff is like when it's self-driven in that regard and they're deciding like the maximum efforts, minimum efforts working in the environments and what's afforded there then they build a more, they build more variability. They're more injury resistant. Um, as Rob Gray talks about they're they're, um, more adaptive to new scenarios and different sports. There's more carryover. Um, whereas if you're always just focused on what's your maximum in like a very small and constrained setup of like a triple jump and you're only triple jumping, like versus, you know, doing five, six jumps in a row, you're limiting yourself but you're also not getting as much information. And if you're starting out in an activity, it might just be straight up to intimidating to even try. Yeah. Yeah. Also pattern overload is a huge issue when you're trying to do those absolute maximal jumps, like triple jumps and high jumps and, and long jumps. Those are very easy to break athletes with. Yeah. I think that's why the, that Nick, the Ruzan study I mentioned a million times where the different, the different distances where it was targets, you jump farther at the end than if you just went max every time. And I think 
maybe there's some correlation to how impactful the event is too, where you need to distribute it more. That's interesting. I mean, that's, but um, yeah, I, I know, I know Rafe, you got to get going here soon. And, and we've, we've definitely covered a lot of material guys. I, I feel like we kind of bounced around with the exact questions, but we covered them all in some way or another. <laughs> I, you know, I, I look forward to hopefully training again with you guys someday. And I hope everyone can uh, get out and do a little bit of nature parkour after this episode. I'll definitely have to head out to the woods here again in the next day or two and get some of that going. So you guys, it's always inspiring talking to you guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being on and, and it's great getting together again. Yeah. 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 Thanks for the invite. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoy the show, the series, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or a view on iTunes, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. I totally appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest.